Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. everybody, welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today we are shaking the dust of this crummy town off our feet, and we're going to see the world. It's a wonderful life, Adam. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And today, in our first segment, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask Adam how It's a Wonderful Life might help us think about life in the church and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with It's a Wonderful Life for this next upcoming Sunday, which will be the fourth Sunday in Advent, December 22nd. In our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. So it's a wonderful life, Adam. You and I have talked Indeed, about it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you and I have talked about this movie before in one of our earlier Christmas episodes where we picked favorite pieces from a whole bunch of different Christmas movies, but this one felt like it merited us coming back and doing a deep dive. Of course, this is one of the iconic ones. Frank Capra, Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed, made right after World War II with all of the trauma of the Great Depression still very much in the water. It's a Wonderful Life at first glance looks like the story of a man whose life begins to unravel one Christmas Eve until an angel appears to show him how much worse off his whole community would be if he had never been born. There's some sentimentality there. It's very Frank Capra-esque, of course, but underneath that sentimentality is a movie grappling with all these anxieties about the peril and promise of the American dream. Famously, by a quirk of copyright law, this movie ended up running all the time on every cable channel at Christmas for most of my childhood, which means I think I am of a generation that has seen this thing probably a hundred times at least. And for all its warts, I admit that I do have a big soft spot for it underneath. But Adam, I think you are here to play the role of Mr. Potter to my George <laughs> Bailey. And I know this one isn't exactly on your good side. How did it land for you this time around? I'll say this. Movies are interesting where you watching them, depending on your mood and your stage of life, can give you new appreciation or raise questions that you had never considered before. And I feel like there have been times in my life where um, I felt a little bit more cynical and a little bit more nihilistic. And this movie um, hit me the wrong way. I watched it last night and I watched it after we had had some friends over for these regular Advent dinners that we do at our house. So on Sunday, each Sunday in Advent, we have some friends over, we eat soup, their kids play with our kids, we talk about things of some measure of consequence, and we just try and build community. And so moving from that particular experience, which was, and moving from that particular experience into watching this movie, I think had softened me to some of the... Uh, the more sometimes saccharine parts of this movie. That said, 
the thing that I pro- perhaps have softened most to was how good Jimmy Stewart is in this movie. Really good. Um, he's he's magnetic, right? And it, and the movie doesn't work unless you actually care about George Bailey and you you value him in some way or you want to be friends with him, right? Because the whole the whole premise of the movie or the point of the movie by the very end is that you know the value of a man is actually like um, seen through the the company he keeps and. Everybody wants to be friends with George Bailey. Everyone recognizes him as um, as an important and um, and thoughtful and decent human being. And Jimmy Stewart captures that. And I think that's the great gift of Stewart. I think when he's being decent, he is magnetic. And when he's being um, a jerk, he actually I, I it's hard to believe him. Right. Right. And so that's. That's that's the thing. His his he's never that edgy, even when he's saying truly terrible things to people, um, mainly his wife. Um, and so that's why I think this movie sort of worked on me last night, which was to say I liked watching Jimmy Stewart act. I watch I like watching him do his thing. That said, the movie itself is a like straight mess and has some real problems to it that I like I can't help but. I can't overlook because it's not really a Christmas message at the end of the day, because it seems to assume too much about the value of human behavior. It needs, you know what it needs, Matt? It means that like, it needs some of those like Isaiah texts where you're sort of seeing this like better world where everything has been overturned. And by the end of this movie, I felt like what's, what's changed? Mr. Potter is still around and he's still a predator. George Bailey is, um, you know, I guess he's not going to jail now, but he's still poor. He's still got this savings and loan that doesn't make any money. His house is still drafty. His, um, he still has this like deep well of resentment that he's never been able to leave Bedward Falls. There's, there's, there's no real resolution that gives me a sense that, that the world could be overturned in such a way where you don't need someone like George Bailey to be the sacrificial lamb on behalf of a whole city. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Two points. One, I, I think is, is a small one, which is to say at the very end, we do have Harry showing up and saying and toasting to his brother and identifying him as the richest man in Bedford Falls. And it is not clear in that moment whether or not he is speaking metaphorically about George's richness through his relationships and friends, or whether he is speaking concretely about the amount of capital that George has just accumulated, like in hard cash on the table in his dining room. And I I struggle with that end sequence for a few different reasons, but if you want to push it and suggest that actually George has now become richer than Mr. Potter, then there is something that changes. But that's the small one. The big one is, I think your argument is actually with almost every Christmas movie. (laughs) You're right. Yeah. Because It's a Wonderful Life is entirely consistent with, and we've talked about this before, with a strain of what we call Christmas genre stuff that I think really roots in Dickens and Christmas Carol, where Christmas Uh becomes a time for people to have epiphanies about relationships in their lives that have gone wrong and to and then to kind of reconcile and try to reform new relationships or have a rebirth 
to put relationships right, which is, which is the Dickens model. It's a Wonderful Life is not far from the Dickens model. I mean, the no, characters very, are a little very different, similar. but it is very similar. I mean, this, you know, and I get lambasted for this, but this is why Die Hard can be a Christmas movie, right? Because it is about the right, underneath all the exploding tower stuff, it is about John McClane and his wife reestablishing right relationship, even though that relationship is busted and wrong in a bunch of other ways. That That's so like, your argument is I, I, fair, but I think needs a broader target than just this one film. <laughs> well, and, and here's my broader target, I think, which is um, this movie wants to make a point about richness. I mean, sure. I, I, I've never read this movie as like that money that shows up is um, actually makes him truly rich. And sort yeah, of I think I think that's a. You have um, to push that one pretty hard. And there's a part of me that says, like, when he gets the wire from um from his from his right. friend Sam from Europe that's giving him twenty five thousand dollars, that there is um that integrity demands that George immediately return all of the money back yes. to the people who have thrown it on <laughs> yes. his table. Right. There's, instead of seeing the accountant just like like, like pulling money. Bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like and um so <laughs> like he's not to mention the fact that there is still this missing $8,000, which um, doesn't actually satisfy the law. Like larceny, even though you may have paid this money back, is still larceny. So despite that, there seems to be a argument about what, how capitalism can work in this world that never fully interrogates the ways in which capitalism is destroying people because on the one hand it wants to say like the predatory work of uh, of mr potter is obviously bad but capitalism at least in according to capra's vision in this movie only works when you have people who are willing to sacrifice their ability to make money on behalf of everyone else who is accruing capital in the world. And what happens with this particular movie is that it shows that George Bailey has to sacrifice his life at every turn, has to sacrifice his dreams, has to sacrifice his, um, his relationships, his uh, ambitions, and his uh, desires to actually build something in order for everyone else to create a life worth living so that they might see their dreams met. And I'm supposed to understand by the end of the movie that it was all worth it because of look at all of the good things that he's yeah. done. But I'm not confident that it was worth it. I'm not confident that like he should have just let Potter like seize the building and loan and gone and build a, bridge somewhere you know because that would have helped somebody too and so it it sort of demands this sacrifice on behalf of george that i felt really sorry for him because i was like i don't know man like you might have been able to do more good had you actually had like a college education or and so i i don't know by the end of this i i want to see i want to i want to embrace the idea that you know the 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 value of a human life is worth the company that someone keeps. Um, and at the same time, I don't think this movie has done 
right by George. Yeah, and I I think I, I hear you, and I, I agree in in some places. Uh, I think that the movie absolutely is asking of George a, a tremendous amount of regular and recurring sacrifice. <laughs> and and it, at the at like the worst times, like right at the edge of a precipice of doing something that he's been dreaming to do, and then it like steals it from him. Sure, absolutely, and and it may be that the the way in which the ending works, which is to kind of retroactively justify all of that, to say no, really, like these were amazing choices all along. You didn't sacrifice anything. Look at the amazing life you have is feels a little bit cheapening on the other hand i do think i think the 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 critique is not to say i think the critique is even further than what kind of capitalism is this if if george can't if george has to kind of deny himself constantly in order for the community to be healthy i think the critique is that this is how damaging capitalism can be that it demands that that it, that it that this town is sitting on the precipice of the abyss all the time, and it only by this this one man's and and it, and it demands the less this level of sacrifice in order to uh, to to not fall apart. And so like, uh, that's I, I, that's so an I, awesome movie. So I, I think they should have just cut it with him falling into the river and that being done. <laughs> right. That's and the... that's like the most nihilistic 1946 movie you've ever seen. Right. So I think this movie actually has a kind of bleakness for the substantial part of its runtime that is really important. And, you know, there's Frank Capra could not in 1946 have made a movie where the guy just jumps off a bridge and then we cut. To credits. <laughs> like there's a whole bunch of reasons why that movie can't be allowed to exist and yet clarence doesn't show up until 35 minutes remaining in this film we have spent a yeah. substantial amount of runtime living in this this place that is both idealized this beautiful bedford falls and also like deeply broken uh, and, and the fact that it can fall so quickly to pottersville uh i, I think is is capra wrestling with uh the the um, the fragility and the the kind of darkness that exists in um, in the American dream at that moment in time, and so I, I think there's a lot of good wrestling that happens here that I quite appreciate and respect. Yeah, and my my fear is that it, the the ending is an is an opioid to mask the like deep pain at the center of this that that's not actually being uh address so i mean so as you watched it this time what what were the things that stood out to you i mean you you watched it a thousand times right yeah. i mean and i don't i don't have very many memories as a young person watching this movie i've only ever seen it as an adult so i don't actually have any nostalgia that goes with it so what about you considering your nostalgia for this what stood out to you yeah i mean so so you you kind of started with the things that worked for you and then backtracked. And I think I might take the opposite tack. I can, there, there are some things that felt like obvious missteps that the movie makes or ways in which it feels incredibly dated or just out of touch that I, I want to name. I mean, first of all, like this movie has some broad representational problems all the way through it. Um, not the least of which is like a, 
um, borderline of, of, of abusive relationship between George and Mary. Like he's like violently shaking her at exactly at the moment when they decide to spend their lives together. Um, and, <laughs> you know, it's very weird. So like it's you know the the the, the gender problems through this film are are consistent and and deeply troubling and apparent like yeah. they they're like right. impossible not to notice right uh I, I also think there's some really unfortunate prudishness in the way that pottersville is represented so yeah, pottersville looks great to me i mean it's 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 a little it's a it's a little yes and i mean there's there's you know all this like great looking live music happening but also like what is clearly kind of Times Square circa 1977 stuff happening. And I, <laughs> and, and I feel like it undercuts the, the basic economic critique of ultra capitalism to say that um, the natural endpoint of it is like uh, kind of sex parlors. Like I feel like the natural endpoint of it can, <laughs> can be people don't accumulate generational wealth. Like this movie is damn near prophetic about the long-term benefits of home ownership, at least at that moment in American society, like yeah, it, totally. Um, we could talk, you know, that might change in 2019, but like the way in which it sees the the possibility and importance of home ownership as a way of of breaking cycles of economic poverty is is, is like just amazing. And, yeah, and yeah. Th- and there's a way to show Pottersville there and the darkness of that without going like. Ooh, look! They have titty bars, uh, which which just yeah. seems dumb and cheap. Uh, I also and I, I hinted at this earlier. I struggle with that end scene. I struggle with all the money dumped on the table because it feels like it has then reduced all of George's relationships to their value under capitalism, which mm-hmm. seems to me to underlie the point that the film is trying to make at other moments, which is these folks desperately trying to find something. That, that isn't just reduced to dollar value. And right. at the end, that that gets a little muddy. And I understand they need to fix the basic problem of needing to find $8,000, but I feel like the visual of it is not great. Um, that being said, I, as I, I think this film does get some really big things right. I've talked a little bit about the economic critique already. Maybe I've talked a lot about the economic critique already. Um, I also I I really enjoy and I'm I'm a sucker for it, but I really enjoy the basic sentimentality of the ending. I, I think there's a really beautiful rendition there of the the value of the relationships that we create, the value of doing unto others, and the value of not underestimating the ways in which you contribute to the welfare of the community around you. There's something really beautifully affirming about that that I I, I appreciate being reminded of. And the last one is smaller, but also critical. And I I carry it a little bit as someone who spent a number of years pastoring in a, in a, in a small town that mm. used to want to be Bedford Falls and kind of still wants to be Bedford Falls. Um, and time has passed it by in some ways. Uh, I think this movie gets something really right about the dynamics of leaving small towns. Uh, and and the way in which uh, George so desperately wants to get out, and the way and the pressures that keep him by, back, and the the lure of the broader world, and the way in which the 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 town keeps trying to say 
no, you have all you need. Uh, I obviously a, a lot of water has gone under the bridge in American small towns between this movie and 2019. But I think there's something really true and honest about that reckoning that I appreciated. Yeah. And there's some really interesting historical vantages to look at this movie from. And the, the small town one is really interesting because how do you, how do you preserve small town in a globalized world is is a 2019 question. It's not a 1946 right. question, but to watch this movie and read it and, and try and ask that question now, it's kind of fascinating in part because it's, it's answer to the preservation of the small town is um, manufacturing, right? It's plastics. Um, and people are able to accrue enough capital to receive a loan so that they can build their own house in, you know, Bailey Woods or whatever it's called. And I read, I read something recently about this movie that said, you know, in 2019, it's more likely that it, that Pottersville would still be around than Bedford Falls. Um, because Pottersville actually had sort of like income streams that still make money nowadays. And Bedford Falls would have fallen into sort of like a terrible poverty because of the manufacturing that would have dried up and gone overseas. And so that, um, that that small town aspect of it is, um, is at once a way that we sort of exercise nostalgia for a sort of suburban way of life. Um, it's so funny how many times people talk about going to New York in mm -hmm. this, in this movie. Um, New York sort of stands in, uh, not in a major way, but um, as a sort of urban environment where there's tons of possibility, but there's also tons of danger. And it's like, and, it's like two hours um, away. Like, I mean, Bedford Falls is a real yeah. place. It's, it's, you can drive right past it. If you drive up into Connecticut, it's, it's not far. Yeah, exactly. And so, but, but that, that serves in contrast to sort of these small town ideals that, that I too, like, I, I feel like I want, I want to embrace at least the good side of them while also recognizing the sort of the, the difficulty of, of having those ideals and the ways in which they prop up particular norms, especially around gender and race sure, and other things course. like that. The thing that I also noticed, and I don't want, I don't want to sound too cynical here, but the relationship between George and Mary is a little strange. Oh my God. <laughs> it's very weird and I'm not totally sure how to uh, understand it now. I may have, we may have crossed a Rubicon where I, I just can't, I don't know what it's like to think about relationship in 1946. Right. And, and I'm not totally sure how I'm supposed to look at this and see this sort of like beautiful love affair. That's going to like um, truly, truly fulfill these two people. To me, it looks like George is, a jerk and Mary's the sort of obsessive type and the two of them are struggling. Like the fact that Mary, uh, invites George over to her house. She's, she's graduated from college and she has this, like she curates this environment where the song that they sang the last time they were together right. is also next to this, what this drawing she has made, someone has made right. about something that he had said. I was watching this and I was like, Oh no, Mary, you can't do that. That's, that's very weird. Mm -hmm. 
that's a real that's a real bummer. And then George is a total jerk. And then they have this strange moment that you referred to earlier where they shake each other or he shakes her, excuse me. And um and then they kiss. And then while, while her like somewhat boyfriend is on the phone, like <laughs> Right, summer boyfriend, and then and this I, is I, this this by the way this is my plot hole. I mean there are a few, but this is my plot hole with the film. If George had never been alive, would Mary not have married Sam? Right, that makes sense to me. Anyway, I, go ahead. The, the other thing, <laughs> I I heard someone refer to this movie as um, what long term home renovation will do to a relationship. <laughs> Which cracked me up because that was hilarious. Yeah. That that Mary is supposed to be this perfect wife in the way that she's a perfect wife is that, you know, she like <laughs> she renovates the most dilapidated and broken house in the city. And and George comes home and he's just mad. He's just mad like he's mad about this house and he keeps going on and on about this house and how drafty it is. And, <laughs> and I just keep I I couldn't help but look at that and think, that feels that actually feels a little true still <laughs> the ways in which like your home does not actually like it's not the way that you want it to be. And therefore it has to take on all of this like extra importance because your life is kind of difficult or struggling. Well, I think, and I think the, I think the seeds of this are sown at the, the very, very beginning of the movie when um young Mary reach, leans over to young George and the soda shop and to the ear that he can't hear out of and says, I'll love you for the rest of my life. And that is, that is the character beat that we get for Mary and we never get another one. Yes. Right. So yes. Like her, the entire purpose and reason for being of her character is to love him. Uh, and even the house, which I agree that she has. So which, which is why she has this like, OCD presentation when he shows up at her house the day that Harry comes back after the party. It's also w why she kind of lives into house renovation because she's made this wish, right? That, that what she wishes for is for the two of them to be together and to be in that house. And so she has been living out the wish that she makes when she throws the rock, like the whole film. And it is all, she doesn't love home renovation for the sake of home renovation. She loves home renovation for the sake of fulfilling the wish, which is being with George. Um, and, and so like that it is, it's so all consuming to her character, which just feels cheap and reductive and like not a real character in a real movie or a real story. And, and it, it doesn't seem like it loves George very much because George is trying always to get out of bedford falls and, and furthermore it kind of it cheapens the last 30 minutes of this movie it softens it unnecessarily because when george comes home at the end of his terrible horrible no good very bad day and starts like yelling at her and yelling about the house and yelling at the kids and he's like borderline violent and abusive and i'm like mary should probably call the police at this moment in time uh and instead he leaves the house and she calls everybody in town on his behalf seeking his welfare and when he comes back at the end reconciled and with zuzu's pedals in his pockets again she she and the whole family are just so immediately thrilled to see him without being like what's wrong 
Or like I know she never tells her that he's lost this eight thousand dollars. And there's a part of me that's like, just talk to and her. There's, the, and there's no like, there's just no, there's no honesty or accountability in those moments. <laughs> no, not at all. Because she doesn't have an engine separate from "I will love you for the rest of my life," and that that's what that that feels that that doesn't feel right to me. Um, Anyway, I, I hang I stand on the things that I think work about this movie, and I and I I think they're valuable and meaningful. But sh- surely this is one of the big gaping holes in it. So what what theologically speaks to you of this movie? I think there's a few things. I think one of them. I mean, you know, this movie opens with like the weirdest 1946 CGI, right? With these like. <laughs> the- God and these angels talking. These angels talking on the screen for a really interminably long amount of time. Uh, but there is something, I mean, we've got to talk about the the kind of divine intervention of all of this. Mm-hmm. And the, the picture of God who, first of all, kind of runs some kind of organizational bureaucracy in heaven and um, is, is sending off angel second classes to go and accomplish various things Uh, that there's something about this active engaged um, personally involved god that uh, feels rich and iconic and certainly something worth us holding uh the the other thing I, i think is is the basic theology of the dignity and worth of human life Mm -hmm. capitalism has not done well for George's sense of self-worth. Right. Mm-hmm. It has not given him the appropriate language and the appropriate value system for him to have a sense of how loved he is and how meaningful his life is. And what this movie needs at the end, um, because capitalism has left this big hole in the middle of the community and in the middle of George is to substitute a different kind of value system, which is something that um, is, is what God can allow for and reveal. It is a revelation. It is mm. not, it, God does not change the, the stakes on the ground. God doesn't put $8,000 in George's pocket. God allows George to see the value that he has that capitalism has not previously allowed him to see. Right. And man, if, if I could accomplish that at church every once in a while, right. That is, that is the gospel, man. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's the gospel, especially in, in this season, which is, I mean, I had, I had a confirmation class in my office and we were talking about Christ and this, this divine intervention where Christ comes in in order to provide new systems of understanding the world and human relationship. And, and I had to say like, Christ is not making a list and he's not checking it twice. He's, he's, it's not about being naughty and it's not about being nice, right? That there is like the value system of capitalism has to sort of quantify things as like good investment, bad investment Mm -hmm. as in terms of good and bad and, um, naughty, nice. Um, so that we can make appropriate decisions. And 
I feel like in so much of my ministry, I'm trying to sort of push against that and say it's not about naughty and nice. It's not about naughty and nice. Right. Um, and that, yeah, and I think your movie, the movie does do that, or at least attempts to do that, at least to sort of show and reveal a value system that doesn't immediately quantify people um, by their bank account. Would you or have you used this one in your ministry? I mean, it's so iconic that there's, you know, this is one of those movies that yeah. is probably safe for an easy sermon reference. Yeah, I mean, as a sermon reference, I think um, I have not. Um, I might, but it would be passing. I don't think I would sort of gather something strictly from the themes of the movie. I think it would be in reference to the sort of the way of the world, the world as it is. And I would use it maybe to contrast with the sort of the strange claims of the gospel um, because it is iconic and it's, and everyone seems to understand it though. The movie is actually pretty dense. I mean, the, the ideas and the themes that are inside it are, are, are bigger and weightier than I think it gets credit for. So um, I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to think about that. What about you? I don't think I've used it. I do think it is one of those that, and that is, I'm sure this is generational that that is so much in the water that there it's it's helpful homiletically because I think you have shorthand to it in a couple of ways, right. um, and and I can imagine that 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 basic theological claim of you know you 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 are not the stuff that you have managed to accumulate. You are the um, the way in which you have circulated love, um, and yeah. the way in which and love has circulated yeah. to you, right? Yeah, I, I think I think that's eminently preachable um, as a as an Advent Christmas time. It's a Wonderful Life sermon. Uh, I think you you know with, without necessarily getting into the deep weeds of you know whether or not that ending really does <laughs> kind of right. date over all of the stuff from the first two thirds of the movie. Yeah, and let's let's move to the preaching text, and maybe we'll sort of unearth how this might work. But before we do, um, let me say that we're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century, and want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. There's right now an interesting article on the website by David Messenbring about the fair trade moniker and how do we discern what counts as ethical creation and ethical consumption. It's actually a pretty interesting article. I think you all should read it. Also, if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. Support for Sunday morning matinee comes also from Candler School of Theology at Emory University. Candler is offering 16 degrees, including a Master of Divinity with a concentration in chaplaincy ministry, which is desperately needed in the church right now, I would say. So take advantage of their very generous scholarship support. 100% of Master of Divinity students at Candler receive scholarships of at least 50% of tuition. Apply by January 15th for top scholarship consideration. Details can be found at candler.emory.edu slash Sunday morning matinee, all one word at the end. All right, Adam. Let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We are looking at the lectionary passages for the fourth Sunday of Advent, December 22nd. 
We have King Ahaz refusing a sign from God and Isaiah providing one. We have the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans. And of course, we have Matthew's birth narrative. Adam, as you look at these passages, what stands out to you for Advent 4? Well, I think the most obvious overlap are these angels, the angels that show up in It's a Wonderful Life, but also the angels that show up in these birth narratives. And uh, the angel who watches over George is named Clarence, and um, and he's sent by Joseph. I'm not sure if they're trying to make a, like, if this is Joseph, father of Jesus, Joseph, who is turned into an angel. Like, the, the mechanism by which we're supposed to un- understand angels and it's a wonderful life and in the Bible is very unclear. Right. The, like, it's a wonderful life does not do a lot of lore building around this this universe. I mean, they're they're leaving it... <laughs> pretty pretty up to us yeah it's pretty up to us but so does the bible for that matter i have to say you know like and i think the the late advent season christmas season actually gives us a chance to talk about angels a little bit which means that because they are so dense in the stories i mean in matthew's narrative the the angel shows up to joseph and encourages him not to divorce mary or to send her away in the Luke narratives. He sh- the angels are everywhere. They're like showing up to uh, Elizabeth and Zachariah and to Mary and to uh, shepherds. And so um, and angels show up to the, to the Magi as well. So this is a sort of particularly angel dense story and time of year that said, I don't know much about angels. Like they are a sort of underexplained phenomenon in the Bible, except to say they generally herald something. They're messengers. I mean, and that's a Hebrew word that's used for them in the, in the Old Testament. Um, and what I like about at least the lectionary passages um, in this time of year is that they model for earth what's happening in heaven. And this is kind of what's happening in, um, uh, in It's a Wonderful Life, too. Is that you have these people and they're they're distressed about George, they're distressed about like what's going to happen to him, and um, and they want to intervene in the world in order that um, the world might have like might be a marginally better place, um, not just for Bedford Falls but also for George Bailey and um, and one of the important parts of the movie or the important themes of the movie is that you don't actually know how important your kindness and your generosity is. It sort of reverberates out in ways that you will never be able to tell, you know, and I think one of the ways it, it signifies that is that his brother is on, on the one hand a war hero and is able to like, you know, defeat Nazi Germany and, um, and in Pottersville, like his brother is dead and doesn't ever get to do that. And there's some... <laughs> There's some questions to suggest like, okay, so what happened in the war? Like did, you know, because this is an important figure in the war effort. And so there's some interesting questions that the movie raises with respect to sort of um, how George's kindness reverberates out, but how the intervention of the heavenly realm might also have far reaching consequences that we never can fully understand. And so I like that. I like the idea too, that like, that God's not removed from our life, right? That that God is connected, and that that the life in heaven and the life on earth are connected. That they like they they affect each other. That the things that we do here, like 
create celebration in heaven and the things that happen here create lament in heaven and vice versa. And like, and I think about that, you know, like if I did preach something, I would probably say something like every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings, which is to me a, a line that suggests that when we do things here, like it affects what happens in heaven. And that's, that's a little bit different than trying to understand the, how heaven affects earth. But I think it would be worth us trying to consider what happens when we affect heaven. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. What about you? Well, I, I kind of laid out earlier my my theory of the the Christmas genre as it dates back through to, to Dickens and Christmas Carol about the the this kind of epiphany moment where someone who is not in right relationship in their life uh learns and gets what the value of that right relationship would be and after the epiphany seeks to to kind of show new life that there's uh there's a rebirth that that happens um and this is for the most part uh not a biblical christmas story right like the the shepherds don't come to the manger and see the child jesus and then be like Oh man, I really should tell my daughter how much I love her. Like there's not you you don't get that kind of change of life pattern in those Christmas stories. But maybe you get it a little bit in this Matthew text. Mhm. Uh, maybe this is the closest thing where Joseph um has an intervention. <laughs> right. Yeah. Where, where where Joseph is planning to um dismiss mary because she has been found to be pregnant from the holy spirit (laughs) and and the angel shows up and says you've got this wrong she's gonna give birth to the messiah Mm -hmm. uh as fulfilled as to fulfill scripture and joseph wakes up and thinks oh never mind i've been in a christmas movie I should change yeah. my life relationships. <laughs> and then He's like Scrooge, like in a dream. Right. And 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 comes and says, Never mind, I'm publicly supporting my wife. Uh he, he or and he marries her and and lives out that public commitment based on this moment of of intervention and epiphany. Um and I, I think that's really interesting, particularly also as a kind of counterpoint to the terrible gender politics that we see in It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, I never want to preach about Joseph or the Holy Family here in such a way as to kind of foreground his story at the expense of Mary's story. This is the one Sunday in the liturgical cycle where we get this Matthew text, which is the one text that gives some sense of Joseph's relationship uh, to the entrance of this story. And I think there is an opportunity when it arises to be able to hint at, and I certainly don't want to make Matthew's gospel more modernly progressive than it probably can stand on its own. But there is a hint here to say, look, this is a good counterpoint to, or or at least this is a helpful counterpoint to a lot of bad gender politics to say, here is a guy who could easily, given the gender dynamics of the time, have thrown Mary under the bus and she would have lost 
all social and, and p political standing and, and would have been publicly disgraced. Uh, and instead, he stands by her um, because she also... An angel has, told him to. Because an angel told him to. I mean, that's kind of a cool intervention. And I, and I, it I, is a cool. I, and I think there's a way of, of, of talking about, and I mean this in the loosest possible quotes, and a way of talking about his allyship. Um, yeah, that could be that could be interesting. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting idea. I mean, and the ways in which like our consideration of otherness and other people's experiences sometimes does does need divine intervention, right? Like, <laughs> right, right. We just we can't we can't always fully understand. And so more likely than not, when we don't fully understand, we sort of hit an, an obstruction or an obstacle and we stop, stop trying. And at least in this movie and in this story, like there is, there is just not just intervention, but there is revelation, right? There is like, I'm going to tell you what's going on here. Right. Yeah. I'm going to show you the true, the true reality of the world in a uh -huh. way that you're not probably totally prepared for. And, um, and you might have some new realization about your life and your role and your, um, and I think that's the same. I mean, that's the same in the Christmas Carol. That's the same in Joseph's story. And that's the same in this story, right? Which is that revelation actually creates new identity for each of those men. And that identity is one that's, that's actually more open to the world around them. Adam, can I confess something to you? Yeah. I'm pretty sure I would never get to Advent 4 on year A and preach the Romans or um, Isaiah texts. I The only thing that attracts me to that Isaiah text is, <clears throat> is Ahaz's refusal to actually, like, give a sign. It's such a cowardly little act by this king. And he and he's sort of slippery in the way that he gets out of it. I don't know what that has to do with <laughs> with it's a wonderful life, other than to say that Ahaz is a little bit is is sly like Potter, I guess. Um, yeah, and that Isaiah has to come in and like and say like you, yeah, you dummy, I'm going to give you a sign. And it's and it's the idea that the sign is unlike anything that Ahaz would have ever come up for himself because of his political power. Um, that's an interesting story. I understand why it's here. Um, I kind of want, I kind of wish it were in another part of the lectionary so that I could preach it more. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly part of it is just like the shadow of the, the little child. The little child is, and, and well, but also like it, for preachers approaching that Sunday, I think the shadow of Christmas Eve itself is kind of casting backwards and it's really hard to resist the actual nativity narratives at that point. Right. And I think there's something important and valuable about that. Yeah. All right, Matt, now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude? So it is it is banner season right now for one of my favorite genres of movies, which are movies where people review documents. I really like <laughs> movies where people review documents, Adam. We've talked about a few of them on the show before. We talked about Spotlight, about the Catholic Church scandal in Boston. We talked about all the president's men. Uh, both of those were journalistic, and, and we've had deep conversations about those genres. We've got two new ones, neither one of which are journalistic, but still have that same 
itch underneath. Uh, on Amazon Prime right now, you can go watch The Report from Scott Burns, which is the Adam Driver movie about, and this sounds very sexy when I say it, it is about the production of the Senate Intelligence Committee report on CIA torture during the post 9-11 war on terror. This report was, was commissioned in the Bush years and kind of ran through the Obama years as the as Driver's character, who's a former FBI agent who was now working for the Intelligence Committee, is trying to get to the bottom of what the CIA had, had done uh, as it was torturing uh, um, its detainees uh, throughout the, the 2000s. Uh, this is one of those movies that is like kind of a plot and kind of a news dump. It, it, it feels like if... It feels like a feature-length segment on the John Oliver last week tonight show on HBO, mm-hmm. um, and so they've they've strung together enough narrative and enough character work to keep it going. But it is clearly just trying to impart information to you as as entertainingly as possible. Um, but in doing that, I thought it was actually quite effective to that end. One would never mistake it for being richly caricature character drama but one i think could rightly understand it as an important work of citizenship in some kind hmm. um the, the 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 second one that pairs really well with that is um surprisingly the new movie from todd haynes who made carol and has made a number of very lush uh melodramas it was i like todd haynes movies a lot yeah todd haynes is a great director and has made a kind of surprising turn working with mark ruffalo on this new movie called dark waters which is about the cincinnati lawyer who ends up um siding with a west virginia town that has been poisoned by runoff related to dow chemicals and this traces the the history of the realization that dow had um um, had knowingly suppressed information about the toxicity of Teflon for like years and years and decades. Uh, and so R- Ruffalo plays the lawyer who, I mean, at the, you know, one of the genre defining scenes, like the, the other side does all of their uh, releases, all of their discovery documents. And it shows up in his office with like a full size U-Haul moving truck and like, <laughs> You know, hundreds and hundreds of bankers' boxes that all get stacked in his office. I love those scenes. Cowering on the floor beneath, but behind them and beneath them, like it's, it's not breaking genre stereotypes. Uh, this one is instead of feeling like a a John Oliver segment, it, it almost feels like a horror movie at points because of the pervasiveness of the chemical that is kind of throughout everyday life and the his dawning realization of that is terrifying yeah um but it is also a todd haynes movie which means it's also just beautiful like it's just beautifully textured and the the way in which they shoot this whole movie takes place over decades but i don't think they shot anything that wasn't in january it is all kind of dark january green and appalachia in this very specific color scheme that is entirely credible and realistic and also unnerving and mm-hmm. and kind of creepy uh really well made um so i recommend both of these movies uh, if you like documents um if, if you like kind of process stories uh what is most interesting to me is that neither one of these seem to be made out of a sense that 
now that the movies are out, there's going to be a public groundswell or, you know, newfound U.S. government intervention that says, oh, my gosh, what has this company been up to? Let's stop them. There's such widespread cynicism about that kind Mm -hmm. of activism and intervention uh, that these films don't feel to me like those terrible documentaries Michael Moore was making for a while right. where he thought that if he just made the movie right, that everything would change. Uh, instead, I have a sense that folks just needed to say it because there was some value in, in putting the truth on the record. Right. And you could dispute whether or not they got the truth right. I'm not authorized to know, but there's something about we're going to say it just because we need to that I find kind of interesting. Uh, and, and, and refreshing in its own way. So anyway, those are my recommendations. Movies about documents. What about you, Adam? So I'm a, like most of the culture right now, a little bit obsessed with little baby Yoda. <laughs> um, it seems it's this like perfect distillation of the ways in which cuteness and it, uh, a sort of small drip, drip, drip of new uh, opportunities to see this cuteness continues to show up in the culture and how that excites everybody, especially when, you know, most of everything on the Internet is a real bummer and is like <laughs> is is harbingers of terrible news. I have been deeply uh Inspired is probably not the right word. Um, I have been comforted by all of the ways in which this small little baby Yoda figure has been taken and synthesized into memes of a million different sorts. And um, and part of the reason I'm so comforted by it is that I find it. um, I find the ability to take this thing that everyone sort of recognizes as wonderful I mean, Werner Herzog saying like it drew right, him right, to right. tears the first time he saw it is hilarious to me. Um, and I everyone, Werner Herzog himself may be like a performance artist at this point. <laughs> I, I uh, next time I will give a long postlude on my deep and abiding and long term love for Werner Herzog that I had since when I saw Burden of Dreams, like in like 1999 as a high school student and thinking this is the coolest person I've ever seen in my life as he was like railing to try and like get Fitzcarraldo made anyway little baby Yoda has inspired this creativity to sort of synthesize other good things that we like in culture and what I like about all of the memes that have showed up is that they're like they're pretty quaint and they're just kind of lovely and they're funny and I just I'm thinking about this a lot because I'm I'm back from an academic conference around preaching around at the Academy of Homiletics and um and the thing that I always feel like when I come back from these types of things is that theological education um focuses a lot on the mastery of content and doesn't focus that much on how to synthesize um, the content into ideas, into creative um, reactions into the world in a way that is positive and clever and thoughtful. And um, and so I watch people who have these like extraordinary gifts and 
it seems inconsequential and trivial because it's just a little baby Yoda. But their ability to take some part of culture, overlay it on the little baby Yoda, and then like create something that brings me like a momentary spark of joy, I think is actually quite holy. And I've been just kind of sitting with that thinking, man, I smile every time I see it. It is not um, it is wholesome in its own way. And it makes me sort of happy to think about little baby Yoda drinking bone broth. And, um, and that's enough. And I realize that in my own work, I don't often get a chance to do that. And so that others are doing it for me feels like a ministry that I am willing to accept, especially at this season where things are stressful and I'm overtaxed. So that's my, that's my post loop. Two thoughts. One, I'm a little surprised that I haven't seen even more kind of advent nativity little baby yoda memes like i've expected more kind of for unto us a child is born little baby yoda (laughs) memes (laughs) so you're doing it matt you're doing it secondly yoda is not the species name yoda is the name of a character who is gone before the mandalorian begins so I'm really excited to find out what little baby Yoda's actual name might ever be, which probably yes. is something we'll have to name him so that we can stop referring to him by like his great uncle's name. He needs his own <laughs> name. He does need his own name and he needs a species name. Species needs a name, but we're not there yet. And I'm happy to, uh, to call him by his, his God given name, <laughs> his baptized name. <laughs> All right, I think that probably wraps it up for this episode, Adam. If you uh, like the show, be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We love your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band. She's an old maid! Thanks, Adam. (laughs) Thanks, Matt.